Welcome to A Lovely Wallpaper, a podcast exploring an underappreciated way of appreciating poetry by committing it to memory. To know a poem by heart means having a worry stone, a provocation, a comfort, a quick exit, always close at hand. Lose yourself in a poem, gain a world with its mastery. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that a loss is no disaster. This week, we will work with the helpful voice of novelist Susie Boyd on a poem by William Blake. This piece came to me because its title appears in a passage of Boyd's recently released and supremely funny and moving novel, Loved and Missed. Good morning, Susie. Good evening. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Um, good, good, good London evening. The scene that brings us here today, in which your protagonist from Loved and Missed, Ruth, almost recites Blake's Piping Down the Valley's Wild, is so rich. Ruth is asked only minutes before the ceremony to read at the baptism of her granddaughter. And she's also asked to be the godmother, which is very unusual for a grandmother because they're so disorganized. Right, right. There's so many levels of heartbreaking mishap and just it's an incredible scene. And it's as tragic as they come because shortly afterwards she'll steal the baby from the drug addled parents, maybe doing a good deed, maybe doing a terrible deed. And a little bit funny as well, because the, the priest, particularly when I nearly had him swear and say, you know, because can you imagine trying to baptize? And he's he's such a sort of do-gooder priest and he thinks, you know, these are difficult people and they need not to be judged and stuff. And even at one point when he's holding the baby and everyone's run off and he just thinks, what the hell is going on? Right. He definitely raises an eyebrow. I re- remember that part. Yeah. But for the reading... She's completely caught off guard and she doesn't have a reading at hand. So she has to draw on her own resources to make beauty where otherwise in the scene it's quite scarce. I was wondering if you would go ahead and read the passage, which I've also used as the source of the title for this podcast, where um, Ruth, who's a teacher, reflects on, on the value of knowing poetry by heart and having something at hand as she does in this moment. Sure. I've got it right here. I always got the girls at school to learn a poem on Friday afternoons. It'll be a lovely wallpaper for your life, I told them. Especially in between moments, when you can't get off to sleep or when you're waiting for the bus or nervous for an important meeting at work. When you're feeding your babies, you can just run through beautiful things in your mind to lift yourself. When you're about to take your curtain call at Stratford-upon-Avon. Often I'd learn one with them too. I had Piping Down the Valley's Wild, Blake's poem of innocence up my sleeve. That was childish, joyous, baptismal. Good. I stood confidently about to begin, and then suddenly I was unsure that its glee and cheer were really what was called for, even though it contained a few tears. I needed something more stringent, a manifesto. Thank you, Susie. So shortly after the passage that you read here, Ruth decides not to recite this. And she she starts deciding the second that she's put the title out there. She decides to sing instead, which kind of renders Blake's words both present and absent in the text. 
I don't know if you've read um, Ben Lerner's The Hatred of Poetry, but he admits that he loves poetry best when exerted in other texts because he said it retains the glimmer of possibility that the whole poem cannot maintain. You know, the poet's aspiring, reaching towards something totally ineffable. So you really amped up the glimmer of possibility here by including absolutely none of the poem in the text. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the significance of Ruth's rejecting the poem. Well, I suppose it's a poem that possibly belongs to a different kind of christening. This is a christening in which one, neither of the parents are religious. It's possible that the father of the child's mother is religious, and that's why the child's being christened, although she hasn't deigned to appear. The other godparent hasn't turned up. There is a godmother there, but she's sort of nodded out on drugs, and so Ruth has to go and get a coffee to wake her up and trying to get some calories into her and the, and, and into her daughter because they're so malnourished. You've got the kindly priest um, beginning to become exasperated with them. At one point, the mother and father of the child disappear to an alley behind the church and start doing goodness knows what. And so it was actually inspired, this church service, by the Christmas after my mother died. I, I couldn't bear the idea of having Christmas without her. So we all went from London to Miami and had Christmas there, figuring we could swim in the sea and just slightly override Christmas or have a really different one. And on Christmas Eve, we went to see that um, La La Land film, which had just come out. And afterwards, when we walked out, I saw this an enormous white building with lots of sort of red and gold parcels outside. I thought it was a really fancy toy shop, but actually it was a church. And it was a church that promised on its um, boards outside radical empathy and extreme sympathy. And I thought, okay, and we went in and, and the church prided itself on supporting and encouraging a congregation who were struggling with drugs and alcohol and mental health problems. So it was a very wild congregation. There are quite a lot of people kind of swaying from drink and other others who were obviously under the influence of drugs. And the sermon was almost completely about grief, which couldn't have been more perfect for me. And there were I can't remember if I mentioned them in this book or in a different book, but there were three little girls in red flamenco dresses with a very high nylon content, I thought, standing next to a <laughs> of sort of, of um, candles all lit. So in my sort of Fireman Sam side, I was thinking that these girls were going to go up in flames and yes, I keep my eye on them. So it was a very, very febrile, exciting, incredibly sympathetic, but slightly scary environment. So I wanted to create something of that with this christening, something that was had a lot of goodness in it, but was dangerous. That was in my mind. Sorry, I don't think that answered your question very well. Um, <laughs> it's so, indeed a very flammable scene. <laughs> exactly. And and everyone in the everyone in the scene has feelings that are very inflammatory. Also, as we know, Ruth sold the only thing she owns of value, which is a small painting, and she's got the money in her person, kind of between her in an envelope between her um, outfit and her bra, so she's, and it's, and she can feel its warmth on her. So she's, the money that she's planning to give the parents in exchange for the child, which, as we all know, giving large amounts of cash to addicts is not what you're meant to do. And so I suppose the poem that came into her mind was a poem for a different kind of occasion. I don't think it would have been particularly bad because it is, it's quite complicated that this poem and and everything that the 
everything the piper does, the child questions, the, the, the piper plays the tune and then the child asks the piper to play the tune again and then he's, the child says, don't play a tune, sing a song and the piper puts down the pipe and sings a song and then the child says, don't sing a song, write something. And so, so it's and and also the child does have tears, and although they're tears of joy, that the the tears are a bit shocking on the page. So, you can see why it occurred to her. But I think she needed to communicate in a more straightforward way, and that the thing that she does choose, which is a which is a hymn, uh, also a poem, but it's a poem that sometimes does communicate more directly that this is a very very difficult situation. It says so much about the story, like you said, the child making these demands on an adult, which is so much, so much the push and pull of a, of a parent-child relationship or the parent-child relationship that you have here in this story. I also love the poem for the fact that it's an invocation. She's about to do this totally generative act. She's making a whole new narrative of family as, you know, you're uh, setting your plot in order, getting um, getting everything ready to go for this story. So it's 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 interesting that you've read so much into it, which which is all there. But I I you can see to sort of raise it and then dismiss it is is um that's very in character with Ruth. And also I I found myself reading it yesterday, and I saw something in I'd never really seen before. But I've said elsewhere I was the youngest of five children when I was born, and all the rest of the my siblings had extremely strong characters and and uh, I had that strong feeling that all the personality types had already been taken. And so it was a, a big thing in my childhood, wanting to be heard and not knowing how to be heard. And because I was um, obsessed with show business and, and still am really, it seemed to me the way to be heard was to go all out to try and forge a career in musical theatre. So I was always singing and dancing and singing and dancing with tremendous amount of hard work and reasonable results, but I wasn't at all good at it. It was just the hard work and also having a good memory that got me quite far. So in this poem, someone is performing, but then at the end of it, they decide what's best is to write things down. And that was a huge turning point for me in my life when I realised the best way for me to be heard was not to be a chorus girl, but to, <laughs> but write, to write stuff. And uh, it was obviously this is a million miles from Blake's intent, but 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 when I read the poem yesterday, <laughs> I, I love that reading that career trajectory. <laughs> That's incredible. I just love that. I mean, I did have a question for about your chorus girl aspirations. I mean, obviously, as a child, you must have memorized so much, loads of lines and songs and dances. Did you memorize poetry as well in school or at home? And how did um, how did your theatrical passions interact with the the admittedly less flashy art of committing poems to memory? Well, I think at school when the teacher was ill, we were got to memorize poems. So it was something that we did. Not that the teachers were always getting ill, but sometimes it was also our homework. We'd have to learn a speech from Shakespeare or or I think I did learn this speech at school. And um, I can still probably remember about 10 poems off by heart that I learned at school. I Last Lent, I tried to learn the love song of J. Alfred Proofrock and I got about 40 lines in and it became a real comfort if I... You know, sometimes when you have thoughts that you don't want to have, I just sort of dismissed them by by um, remembering that poem and the images of it were so powerful with the sawdust restaurants with oyster shells and suddenly I was in a whole other world and 
that that was really really reviving um with the chorus girl life i went to a dance school where almost all the songs were about cheering people up so a perfect codependency training <laughs> so <laughs> about how you couldn't be happy yourself and yes everyone else was happy or you'd behave in a certain way and that would make the sunshine and gray skies are going to clear up put on a happy face on a wonderful day like today and yeah so there, there was a there was a sort of sense of I was very good at consoling people when I was a child and there was a sense that you weren't a proper female if you couldn't turn someone's mood round in half an hour obviously I've now I now realize that that's nonsense but it but it was it, it was quite a strong thrust with me as a, as a child, being a, a, a kind of cheerer-upper in the community at large. So that I mean, that's interesting. Uh, you mean to hear you're talking about um, choosing um, proof rock as an adult as like a kind of private consolation, but that so much of your youth was uh, devoted to public consolation. I mean, I, I know that um, you spent a lot of time um, walking and listening to poetry on podcasts, I think, during the pandemic. Yeah. You know, I actually originally conceived the idea for this while walking around during the pandemic also with a, a newborn in, in his sling. Oh. And since I don't sing, but I do love poetry and I know a few poems by heart from my years as a student and as a high school teacher, I wanted to to learn more, but it's very impractical to walk around with a book in your hand and a baby strapped to you. But I wonder, during those long walks, did you ever turn off the podcast and um, go over proof rock yourself or have other poems at hand that you um, that you uh, said to yourself? I think not so much when I was walking, but one of the nicest things was that the London Review of Books podcast had a sort of special section to it. And the people doing it were one of them had was in the year of two years above me at Oxford and had taught me a bit as a PhD student. And the other guy had taught me, um, I did a master's at London University in English and American Literature. And they were both having conversations about poetry, which we had had. And there was something, and there was one uh, episode about Thomas Hardy and they were literally having the same conversation that we would have in the bar 25, 30 years ago. And it, it was so, it was unbelievably soothing. <laughs> People were saying in Hardy's poem, The Voice, where it says, it, he used to say lost in existlessness, but he changed it to one wistlessness. And even then we were just thinking, Thomas Hardy, what a mistake. What were you thinking? You know? <laughs> these guys are all kind of named professors now and, you know, sort of right at the top of the of the of the literary tree. So it was so nice to hear them still shaking their heads at this youthful error on behalf of Hardy, well, he in fact wasn't that young at the time, but um, so that that made me think about um, how poems were built and different versions of poems and what what poets go through when they're revising poems as well, and 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 maybe when you're learning poems, you do. Need, I know I've made a few mistakes in the things I've even quoted today. I know when you're learning poems, you do usually have bits that you get a bit wrong, and and thinking that figuring that if the poets have even got it a bit wrong or changed it to the worst version or something, then you don't feel so hopeless not being able to remember it perfectly. So funny. Um, what a yeah, what an amazing thing to be able to time travel like that. <laughs> I know, I know. And what was really good is I felt I'd in that way when one in in lockdown when we were all feeling pretty strange. I felt that I sort of dumbed myself down a bit or I sort of watched things that were that 
sort of numbed me rather than stimulated and inspired me. And, and I think it was listening to those podcasts and coming back to poetry again, I, I felt don't just fill your mind with sort of low quality things, do things that involve effort as well, even if it's hard, because it will be more nourishing somehow. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I know that one of your favourite poets is John Berryman. Yeah. Um, his poems are so gorgeous and slippery and I imagine very hard to memorize with um, being full of constantly upended expectations and a very unique sonic approach. Do you know any of those by heart? I know bits of them. I guess we can't talk about Berryman without also decrying his lapses into misogyny and, and some of his attitudes towards race are extremely regrettable. But I, I discovered him when I was working in a bookshop and uh, I, I worked in a bookshop on Saturdays and Sundays because the rate was a bit higher and I was always trying to um, have more time to myself to write. And uh, we were completely unsupervised on Sundays. So, And the bookshop got all the newspapers and we just used to sit in the poetry section with cups of coffee and cakes. And and, and I discovered John Berryman there, in, which was really wonderful. And then I mentioned it to my dad and he knew him, knew his work very, very well. And there was one point where we used to discover new dream songs and ring each other up and say, oh, have you have you read number 72? Or, I mean, 29 is... <laughs> what about seven and you know all that kind of thing and, and so I it's more um lines that come to me and and that that poem where he imagines that he's killed someone and he knows he can't have done because he goes through absolutely everyone he knows and nobody's missing and never did Henry as he thought <laughs> he had end anybody and and um bury the pieces or and and there's another one there's a sonnet where um He's having an argument with his love interest at that time because someone has committed suicide by jumping from a building and landing on a car. And the woman in the sonnet is saying, what a what a dreadful thing to do. You know, what a what a bastard, basically um, not spring wide. And and um, and then and the Berryman character. <laughs> You know, you can hardly complain about a man life in his teeth, you know, where, where, and, and there's just one point when they're having this argument and it's, it's so, you can tell she's saying people, how can people that be that selfish? And he's saying people with extremely painful mental health situations don't really get to choose how they conduct themselves. And then it's suddenly it says yellow you were wearing. And I always think of that. Um, in the middle of an argument that he's, he just can't, he's awful, but also endearing, womanising, just that yellow you were wearing. It's, he's just suddenly sort of remembered the look of her. And um, I probably can remember bits, but I, I probably won't remember them very well. Um, but I, I do think of him a lot and sort of what he went through and, and really trying to be a poet with a capital P living right out at the very edge of things, sort of making poetry out of his skin and the sort of this sort of suffering poet and and but but also having a I suppose the way he lived being so so rough and then he, some of his poems being incredibly delicate and sensitive and that those two things side by side I find very moving it's such a wonderful thing about about reading Berryman if I was really clever I would have um brought up some poems on my phone <laughs> no 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 from memory I mean, I, I asked that question just out of curiosity because I've been kind of reflecting on, as I go on with this memorization project, 
what will I approach that's out of meter, that's not, you know, it's obviously a far easier project to memorize a Blake poem or a Dickinson poem or even, you know, a Shakespearean sonnet than to take on a lot of 20th century uh, freer poetry. Filling her compact and delicious body with chicken paprika. That's a nice start. (laughs) I love that. Okay, well, thank you. Um, I guess uh, just before you uh, read the poem at hand for me, uh, Piping Down the Valley's Wild, you know, it's funny because it's it's a poem that I kind of dismissed Songs of Innocence for a long time. I guess maybe not having been exposed to them as a child is just a, a long set up for the juicier experience ones. But I've been thinking about this poem a lot because of you know, Ruth and her reversal and the project of memorizing it. But I'm wondering, uh, before you read the poem, what makes this one a fun, interesting one to know by heart? Well, I suppose I'd say that it seems, at first, it seems charming and childish. And then, and then, um, if you allow the waves of it to break over you, you, it then sort of feels a bit like it's about everything. And I'm very interested in how we edit ourselves for others, how parents edit their, themselves for their children and children edit themselves for their parents. And we'd probably not want our parents to know the 10 worst days of our life or the 10 worst moments of our life. And we probably, your child is very, very young now, but but we probably wouldn't want to know our children's or it, it was just sort of too painful and I and it seems to me now sort of not being sort of nine which I probably was when I learned it that it's got something of that in that I mean we don't know much about the song that the piper is piping but he's trying to communicate something pretty important to the child and, and it's a bit unclear what what it is and sort of what's appropriate to childhood I remember being told things as a child which I knew weren't suitable for my ears and feeling sort of thrilled but also disheartened and I feel the poem's also got something in in it about which you feel when your children are really little that you want to keep anything that isn't utterly lovely away from them and it sort of can't be done but it's also not right to try I think so it seems to catch at quite deep things about children and adults although you could make a good case that that was a complete overstatement and I may be bringing too many of my own sandwiches to the picnic, but that's how it's like <laughs> today. I mean, some people read into the word stained, that there's sort of loss and, and guilt and, and tarnish in that word. But I, I just see that you can't write with water. You need to stain it to make it into ink. So I, But stained is a very sort of heavy loaded term and it's it you know makes you think of sin and mortal sin and all that so yeah so whether there's a the natural pull possibly that artists have with trying to retain some sort of childlike wonder whether that can be sustained or or whether something of that way of looking at the world has has to experience some kind of stain to carry into adulthood and sort of full expression. Thank you so much. Um, I love that reading. And uh, if I can ask you to go ahead and read the poem itself now for me. Okay. Piping down the valleys wild, piping songs of pleasant glee. On a cloud I saw a child, and he laughing said to me, Pipe a song about a lamb. So I piped with merry cheer. Piper, pipe that song again. So I piped. He wept to hear. Drop thy pipe, thy happy pipe, sing thy songs of happy cheer. 
So I sang the same again, while he wept with joy to hear. Piper, sit thee down and write in a book that all may read. So he vanished from my sight, and I plucked a hollow reed, and I made a rural pen, and I stained the water clear, and I wrote my happy songs, every child made joy to hear. I am absolutely with Susie here. The more times I read the poem, the more nuance I find in the way Blake writes the interplay of word and song, of poetry spoken and written. I mean, this is the sort of rewarding work memorization can do. Poetry becomes a better mirror when we speak as the poet, and a better vehicle for thought. I hope all this piques your interest. Plus, this poem has one more very practical thing to recommend it. For our purposes, the rhyming and meter are light and predictable. The poem is a short 20 lines, so we should have an easy time embodying it. So today I propose piping down the valley's wild for you to learn and keep. Whether you are walking or folding laundry or commuting or waiting on hold, I hope you are installed, a quiet moment at hand, to listen, repeat, and naturalize these words. We will begin with the first of five stanzas. I will read one pair of lines from this four-line stanza, and when I ding the bell, you can repeat to practice. I will keep adding verses, dinging the bell, waiting for your repetition. You can speak along with me as you practice and progress. So here's Blake's Piper, romping, making music, describing the experience. Piping down the valleys wild, piping songs of pleasant glee. Now, here is the second couplet. On a cloud I saw a child, and he laughing said to me, Now, let's put the stanza together, all four lines. Piping down the valleys wild, piping songs of pleasant glee. On a cloud I saw a child, and he laughing said to me, That was the first stanza. Let's practice it a few times to get the rhythm of this poem into our heads, and so that you will always know where to start if you ever need to call this poem up in your memory down the line. Piping down the valleys wild, piping songs of pleasant glee. On a cloud I saw a child, and he laughing said to me, Sadly, the illustration of this particular scene in Songs of Innocence depicts the child as a pretty standard cherub angel. Though, I like to imagine that the laughing child is more mischievous, pointing down at the valley like he'd be ready to pull out a thunderbolt if our piper tries to play it cool and tune out this apparition. Okay, are you ready to find out what the celestial child wants? Here is the second stanza. Pipe a song about a lamb, so I piped with merry cheer. 
Piper, pipe that song again. So I piped. He wept to hear. So, it looks like he wanted a lamb. I was reading The Little Prince to my son the other day and began wondering whether Antoine de Saint-Exupéry was inspired by these lines when he had the prince show up demanding a picture of a sheep and then roundly rejecting all the narrator's best attempts. Anyhow, now that you know the first and the second stanza, let's put together what you know so far. Piping down the valleys wild, piping songs of pleasant glee. On a cloud I saw a child, and he laughing said to me, Pipe a song about a lamb, so I piped with merry cheer. Piper, pipe that song again, so I piped. He wept to hear. I hope you were able to put the first two stanzas together. But if not, don't worry. We will review and keep on reviewing. If you're a more visual person and not driving a car at the moment, look up the poem and practice it again with the text in front of you. Moving on to the third stanza, we find this cloud child happily and vocally replacing all the more typical muses. The passive woman muse, the stern glory of God muse, the cajoling continues. Drop thy pipe, thy happy pipe, sing thy songs of happy cheer. So I sang the same again, while he wept with joy to hear. Drop thy pipe, thy happy pipe, sing thy songs of happy cheer. So I sang the same again, while he wept with joy to hear. Let's put it together now. As we are putting it all together, the silences are getting longer and longer. It almost feels as though I am slowly ceding the poem to your voice. Piping down the valleys wild, piping songs of pleasant glee. On a cloud I saw a child, and he laughing said to me, Pipe a song about a lamb, so I piped with merry cheer. Piper, pipe that song again, so I piped. He wept to hear. Drop thy pipe, thy happy pipe, sing thy songs of happy cheer. So I sang the same again, while he wept with joy to hear. I have a friend whose daughter, once, on recognizing the totally Baroque nature of her own bedtime routine, bath, book, story, song, back scratch, etc., 
asked her father, so what else can you do for me? This child as muse is posing the same question as we move into the fourth of five stanzas. Piper, sit thee down and write in a book that all may read. So he vanished from my sight, and I plucked a hollow reed. So, on the one hand, the child muse is just seeing how far he can coax the piper. What else can you create for me? But also, in a larger sense, he is tracing a history of the creative impulse. First music and oral storytelling, and then the individual artist with all that recorded for posterity. Or, he's tracing our friend Susie Boyd's trajectory from chorus girl to novelist, whichever. Anyhow, I just love how the rhyme of read and read here at first seems obvious, but I think it's a little sneaky. A read evokes music just as much as it evokes writing. Here we go with the fifth and final stanza. And I made a rural pen, and I stained the water clear, and I wrote my happy songs, every child made joy to hear. I love the refusal to be a formal poet here. Is he literally making an improvised ink, or is he leaning into ambiguity? In that phrase, staining the water clear, he not only plays with loss of innocence, like Susie Boyd mentioned, but he also plays the permanent against the fleeting, as he evokes the long-standing poetic trope of words being written out on running water. And that was our poem. I hope it unfolded for you in a way which made you glad to make it your own. And I hope you can hold on to it. Review it on paper or let it live more like a song in your memory. Thank you to Susie Boyd for lending me this podcast's title. To G.W. Sock and the X for use of their song, The Art of Losing, which borrows the words of Elizabeth Bishop. And thank you to my sound engineer, Alex. Alex.